Hello and welcome to Digital Surfing with Darren Smith, the podcast that dives into digital leaders' success and failures as they ride the wave of a career in digital business. Introducing our host, Darren Smith. Hi, I'm your host, Darren Smith, and every episode I'll be chatting to a special interviewee on what they've learned on their digital journey. Digital transformation and maturity is key to surviving in business today, and many people have a host of stories to tell about the successes and failures of digital projects they've been involved with. Let's go digital surfing. Today, my guest is a video marketing champion, Yaniv Segal. Yaniv has lived all over the world in nine countries, in fact, including Vienna, Portugal, Sydney, Dublin, and most recently, now Sweden. So, yeah, he's uh, currently leading the sales and partnerships efforts at Vidyard, in particular in, in the MIA region. Previously worked as a senior channel account manager at uh, HubSpot, uh, where he helped companies increase revenue and growth before joining Vidyard. So, Yaniv, he speaks uh, six different languages, a self-confessed basketball fanatic, and someone you definitely do not want to challenge in a yo-yo competition, I believe. So, welcome, Yaniv. Uh, it's great to have you join us. Darren, uh, thanks so much for having me. That was the coolest intro I've had. I love that one. That was amazing. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, and you can't challenge me on yo-yoing, that's for sure. So, whoever hears this and knows how to play yo-yo, I dare you to a challenge for sure. That was actually going to be my first question. So, so is there actually a yo-yo like kind of championship? Is there uh, medals and, and competitions and so on? Or have you just... Oh, uh, yeah. Kind of, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. I think, um, I think actually Netflix released like a series like I think two months ago about like random competitions. And then one of the episodes is yo-yo. And for the people interested, you should look that up. It talks about all the competitions worldwide that are being held in yo-yo. So you have, you have competitions in, you know, US, Japan, Asian Pacific, in Europe, all over. So for some people, you know, the yo-yo, when they hear yo-yo, they're like, oh yeah, that's the thing I did when I was eight, you know, or 10 or whatever. And then you have some couple fanatics that just keep at it in their teens and their early twenties. I was one of them and competed and uh, also did it professionally. So, uh, so yeah, but there, there, there's this, uh, this niche community of, I don't know, 10, 20,000 people worldwide that do this really fanatically. And is the community growing or, or, or is this a kind of a stagnant, stagnant size? So it is growing, but I, I'm a little bit out of it right now. I, 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 you know, maybe for the last eight, nine years, I haven't been very active in it, but it is growing like crazy. I, I dip in in, in sometimes uh, to see what kind of competitions they're doing. The amount of videos, tutorials, e-com websites, selling yo-yo and gear, it's, it's exploding. So uh, that, that's still very cool to see. Yeah, I think uh, my, my greatest accomplishment was uh, was doing the walk the dog. That was about as far far as I could I could go. Is that, is that still still a still a move? Yeah. So the thing is with the walk the dog, that's actually, in my opinion, like a scam trick. Why? Because. <laughs> The reason it's a scan trick is because walk the dog for the people that, that don't know it. It's when you throw the yo-yo down and then let it kind of walk over the floor, right? Go over the floor and then bring it back up. The problem with that is that when you do that, you damage the yo-yo, right? So the whole idea is you do walk the dog more than enough. You buy a new yo-yo. So over and over and over again. So it was literally a thing to destroy your yo-yo to buy the new one. Um, so, yeah, it, it's still a trick, but I wouldn't recommend it, to be honest. Oh, well, maybe maybe that's why I never became professional. I was, I was walking the dog too much. 
Yeah, you did. You, you exactly. <laughs> if you wouldn't have, you know, we would have had a, a battle off uh, in in yo-yo for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, awesome. I think that's really, really cool. So the, 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 the other thing that stood out from your profile there is, is the six languages that you speak. Um, you know, you don't hear that every day. Has, have you found that kind of having that ability to speak different languages has really helped in your, in your career, in particular in digital and video, or uh, not so much? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I think in, in EMEA, right, in non-native English speaking EMEA, I think it's already quite common for, for people to speak two or three languages, which was the case for me as well, right? Um, and definitely throughout my career, it, it has helped me, right? Because I, I work and worked in sales and we sell to a whole EMEA. So what that also means is that I leverage my language skills in, in selling. So one of the languages is Hebrew, right? So if we sell into the Israeli market, I would use Hebrew, um, Portuguese for Portugal or Brazil. Um, my German is has deteriorated, so I don't sell in German, but still it helps if you have a couple of sentences in the process. So it's actually... Uh, I would argue a, a real competitive advantage if you're in a sales profession in Europe specifically, if you speak multiple European languages, because it will give you a leg up and more value within a sales organization because you can sell to multiple uh, countries and, and demographics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, would you say English is still the primary business language or you know, people have often said, you know, there's me being a native English speaker, you know, I just assume that English is, is just spoken everywhere and it's, and it's the language of business. But people often say, you know, uh, countries like or, or languages like Spanish is actually way more prevalent than English. There are countries, so I, I can really only speak for, for EMEA, a little bit of APAC, where, right? There are countries in Europe where you need to speak the native language to be a successful um, person um, to communicate, in my opinion, in sales, but in customer success and in marketing as well. So, for example, I would argue Germany, France, Italy, Spain, uh, to some extent also Portugal, but these countries um, expect a level of, um, of from a business to be communicated in their language. So when you look at, for example, HubSpot, right? The reason why HubSpot also exploded uh, other than being a fantastic product and, and just having a great product market fit, right? And growing because of that. But if you look at the office of Dublin, when I joined, it was about 250, 280 people. I think the Dublin office at HubSpot is like close to a thousand people right now. And the reason for that is, is that all these people are selling and servicing and marketing in all these different languages, right? So while I do think that in some countries, English is still the main business language, mostly Western Europe, the native English countries and, and the Nordics, the Southern European countries, uh, it's all about the native uh, language of those countries in order to be successful, not just to sell, but to market and to service those customers. Yeah, yeah, I think you know we absolutely see that. I mean, moving moving into a little bit more about kind of digital mm-hmm. is from a website perspective. You know, it's all good and well to start your website to start your business in your native language and maybe in English, but if you really want it and kind of other markets, you know, uh, where the where first language is, is something else besides English, you really do need to have localized websites, and that really impacts from an SEO perspective as well. Big time, big time. So from a website perspective, same same thing, right? If, if you're selling into France or into Spain or into Italy, you better have, you know, an Italian, Spanish or, or French website. Otherwise, you also, you lose those customers, right? Because n- the nativity of, of them 
speaking English or reading English is very low. So the moment they don't see an option in their language, they bounce and you lose a potential lead, potential customer purely because you haven't catered to those language capabilities. So I think it should be a big focal point if you sell to uh, those types of countries, for sure. Mm. So, you know, talk, talking about your kind of digital affinity, you're speaking about websites, yeah, you spoken about video, um, you know, where, where did your affinity to digital start? Was it from studying? Was it uh, from childhood? Was it through gaming? Like, you know, where, where, where did that kind of love for digital all begin? The love, so the love, real love for digital really began when I, when I started uh, at HubSpot um, as, as a BDR. Prior to that, obviously, I, I enjoyed, um, you know, digital from an online perspective during my studies. I had a couple startups that I started prior to joining HubSpot, which were, which were digital businesses. Um, so I always have an affinity, but a real love and passion for understanding the power of an effective digital company or an effective digital strategy really came uh, with HubSpot, where you understand that um, it's all about making sure that you help customers in the most effective way and do that in the channels that they most want to consume content in. And that's where really my love started. Uh, But prior to that, obviously, I already had some startups in in digital as well, but the love really started uh, when I started at HubSpot. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to pin that, that stuff about your, your startups. I really want to chat a little bit more about that uh, in, in a few minutes' time. But sure, sure. going back to kind of that comment you made about HubSpot now. So, you know, when you say that the kind of love started over there, it sounds to me like, you know, they must have some amazing internal training to really kind of teach you kind of all those fundamentals about digital. right? The whole narrative of HubSpot, HubSpot created inbound, right? The whole concept inbound is HubSpot. And in my opinion, that is the fundament of everything. For me, it was really an opener to understand that, you know, and and it's it's the narrative that HubSpot has had for years, right? You don't want to be annoying, interrupting, and irrelevant. And the whole inbound methodology is all about being helpful in an effective way and creating content and solutions that people want to find and want to engage with. And once I realized how powerful that is and how businesses that adopt that inbound methodology, that's when I realized, wow, this, this is really a game changer for organizations that do that effectively. So we get trained the moment you get hired at HubSpot, you get trained, not only trained, you get thrown in the deep end. They say, go, here's a HubSpot license, go build the websites from scratch and build an inbound strategy. And that was amazing, right? To then mm. see how software can immediately enable you to execute on such an inbound strategy in, in, in a very smooth way. So yeah, HubSpot, that's that's what they do really, really well. And I'm like, does every single employee that starts at HubSpot, do, do they all get given the kind of a HubSpot portal and they need to go off and build a website or is it a certain teams? Uh, how, how does that work? That's a good question. I'm not 100% sure they might have changed because obviously I started in a in a BDR role. So um, I know in sales for sure, um, I think also most customer facing teams, everybody would receive a portal. I'm not sure if they still exactly do that. Things might have changed because of the scale now of the organization. But I do know that various people in sales, marketing service uh, and leadership as well, the directors would start, VPs of sales would start. They would have to go through the same project as a junior first-time BDR, which I think that also creates real unity towards a mutual goal, right? Everybody's on the same page because everybody in the organization, at least in the customer-facing teams, knows in and out what the philosophy is of inbound and how the software can enable you to do that. And they do that amazingly. 
And, you know, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that people make um, and digital entrepreneurs make is they come up with these amazing ideas. They build digital product um, and then they think they know what their customers want because they become successful. They're no longer, uh, you know, actually hearing the, 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 the issues, the complaints, the, the challenges that, that, that customers have. So they, they, then their product doesn't, doesn't keep up with the rest of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you look at, at, at Vidyard now, you're at Vidyard. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that every single employee in Vidyard is an active Vidyard user. Big time. Big time. Yeah. Videos all over, just like you. I think you're also a big video sender. <laughs> Everybody here at Vidyard sends video all over the place. There's no written stuff almost anymore. Yeah. Absolutely. It, 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 that absolutely changed my life. I mean, like I think uh, working across time zones, you know, I've got colleagues in the US that I can then, you know, record video that I can go offline and they can have contextual feedback from myself in their own time when they wake up. I mean, like if you're on the West Coast uh, of, uh, of the US and, you know, we sit in, in a mere time zones, you know, it's very difficult to collaborate without something like Vidyard. Yeah, and we can talk about that more, but to bring it back to the topic of everybody needs to be on the same page inside the organization. And then to your point as an extension, like be obsessed with constantly gathering feedback and truly trying to understand the customer. I think those two ingredients are, are, are tantamount. They're like so important um, in order to succeed as a company. And to your point, a lot of people know, think they know what their customer wants and what mm-hmm. their customer has. But then, you know, I, throw, I would throw out a question to them and say like, okay, so what are the top three challenges of your customer right now? Uh, yeah. You know, and then, it, it, and then you, or you get 50 different answers. And then you also know not everybody is on the same page. And I think if you get that right and everybody understands how your product solves that solution, then you have a winning formula. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. So in preparation for the podcast today, we, we mm. spoke before and you mentioned that, you know, you would say your big, biggest kind of digital success is actually joining Vidyard and helping uh, expand the partner program and so on within, within Vidyard. Um, why do you say that that's your, your greatest success? I always like a good why question. The reason why it was basically a um, a validation that video communication was the next big frontier in succeeding as a business, right? And me moving from HubSpot to Vidyard and being able to evangelize that full-time as my job, right? To, to personalize and communicate on a human level instead of only text-based. That's why I consider it as, as my biggest achievement to be able to go from where I was at HubSpot, being the first Vidyard user in, in our office in, in Dublin, so end of 2016, beginning 2017, to now having more than 600 sales reps and service people use Vidyard in HubSpot. So that was one organization. And then the why, that's my biggest achievement. Now I can get to help thousands of organizations to do this. And, and, and see the benefit and value of communicating on, on a vi- in a visual and a human level. So that's why, why it's the biggest achievement for me. Cool. And, you know, I always love a little bit of a stat. And I don't know if you have this. I'm going to put you on, on, on the yeah, spot. Yeah, go ahead. But, no you know, the increase of usage of Vidyard in particular, do you have like kind of how much storage space have had from when you started to now, I mean, like is, is, is it taking up uh, terabytes, whole data centers, or is there, how do you measure, is it in, in minutes of video created, like, like how has that grown from, 
How long have you been with Vidyard? Uh, uh, year. Two years almost? Yeah, now over a year. Yeah. Over a year. Yeah. So in terms of data, um, that's actually a good question. I, I don't know that answer to it. The way we look at it in, in measurements is amount of users. And the way we look at users are people that actually either create videos and send it to prospects or engage with Vidyard players. So if I'm not mistaken, the, the, the last count, I, I think we're approaching 5 million users on a uh, monthly basis, if I'm not mistaken. So that is an insane amount. I think like beginning when I started, it was less than 3 million. So we nearly doubled the amount of engagement in videos being watched on Vidyard players in a year's time. A lot of it had to do obviously with the acceleration because of the COVID situation, but that is the stat that I would, I would throw out there to, to, for it to show how, much Vidyard, not just Vidyard, but visual content and video content has grown in, in the past years. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when I started using Vidyard, I had the Chrome extension and I can kind of see when somebody's watching a video. And I used to use that extensively. And now that notification, that Chrome notification is constantly sending um, kind of notifications out and, and yeah. I actually can't keep up with it. So that just shows how much, just from my use, how, how, how much the, the usage has increased. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's and it's going to continue to increase, right? Both synchronous and asynchronous video communication. I mean, they are now a standard stable for a lot of organizations that before were never on a Zoom call or never on a, a, a quick video to record it to a prospect or to a colleague. So this trend now that video software has started basically since COVID now, I think it's going to just continue to grow over the, over the next years. Yeah, for sure. So when we talk about the biggest digital projects, you've also said that, you know, establishing a a mere um, partner ecosystem for Vidyard has been kind of one of the biggest digital projects you've worked on. Um, So I'm quite interested when you think of the kind of, what should I say, like operationalizing that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Um, I suppose maybe take us through from the beginning where you might have been using something like a Google Sheet to track opportunities, leads, users, whatever the case may be, commissions, to where you might be now where you becoming, you have to scale. I'm like, if you've doubled in size, you have to be able to scale this. There must be some really interesting digital projects in that process that you've been through. Yeah, so a, cu- a couple components to that, right? So first of all, is the, the human resources aspect. So I think we nearly tripled our partner team in one year's time because of this growth. Um, from a process perspective, the largest change, and we're actually now in the process of implementing this, is transitioning to a more robust partner management ecosystem. So a new partner software where we can manage our partners more effectively, understand Mm. revenue coming from partners more effectively, but also partners to have better access to collateral, uh, to register opportunities, to see what kind of revenue is coming out. Um, We used to have a, a more simple version of that partner software, but we ran into we ran into bottlenecks there. Bottlenecks being leads not being registered correctly in our, our, our CRM or multiple people registering at the same time and only one receiving the re- registration notification or yeah. content not being updated as frequently because this, the software wouldn't allow to show what's our freshest content, for example, that agencies can use to leverage when they talk to end clients. These were kind of the bottlenecks that we're starting to hit that would frustrate partners, but then also frustrate us from an organizational standpoint to be able to understand how our partners can perform better. So now we've transitioned to a much more robust system that will allow to remove all those bottlenecks. So that's one process. Trying to see if there's any other 
process that I think, do, do you want to get more regarding specific software and tools? Let's talk a little bit more about, about this partner software that you're talking about now. Yeah. Have you gone and built customized software or have you gone and found a SaaS provider that has some sort of partner um, platform? Yeah, it's a SaaS provider. I guess I can mention it here. So their name is Partner Stack. They're very robust. A lot of big SaaS players are using that partner portal. I don't think we're at that scale yet where we would need to develop something in-house like HubSpot at some point did, right? Build a whole in-house solution. But that would be the next frontier, right? So we're still using a, a ZAS solution that we're tweaking and making bespoke to our and our partners' ecosystem and needs. But it's not something built in-house, but it's a big step up from our previous partner software that just had limitations and was really just meant for, you know, much smaller partner ecosystem, much simpler interaction between partner and us as a software vendor. So if you were to do it again, because there's, there's different trains of thought, like, you know, adopt something smaller, simpler, cheaper, that can be rolled out faster, or go for something more robust. But when you're still in startup mode, which route do you take? So if you were to kind of, I'm not sure if you were involved in the initial rollout, but if you were to do it again, would you just go straight to partner stack or do you have gone the step before? That's a good question. I, I am more of a fan to, to plan for the future and buy software that you can grow into and scale than mm-hmm. constantly buying software. Then, you know, you outgrow it very quickly, right? And then move on to the next one. You outgrow it again. I'd rather have a very robust set that you can grow into. And I think that Vidyar did a good approach here because the previous partner software was there for about three years. So it was a software that enabled us to get where we want it. But now we needed to take the next step that now when we 10x and we are on track to that, that that software is going to allow us for the foreseeable future to continue to manage our partner ecosystem. So in I was in the position that we were in. I think actually the roadmap that Vidyard took here was actually the right one because both solutions that were chosen were larger and bigger than what we needed where we were in, in the face. And that's what I always think is the main rule of thumb here to really think three, four, five years ahead and which software is going to enable you to grow with you during that period without having to rip and replace and the whole mess associated with that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's always a big headache. And then there's, I suppose, the integration side of things. I mean, like, so you're busy rolling out new software and you're talking about registering leads and your CRM and so on. I'm, I'm assuming, you know, there's ability to claim commissions and so on. There's a lot of integrations that need to happen in, in, in the back end. You guys obviously have developers because you've developed your own kind of video platform. But in this case, are you going to take your developers off developing the core product to, to do some of this work? Or are you going to use a professional service provider that you can allow them to do the work with integrating uh, partner stack and, and, and the different tools in your business? It's a, it's a good question. I wish I knew the exact answer to that. I don't because I don't deal with that part. I've, I've just been advising and helping. I haven't been at the core of this. What I do know is that we have some tech savvy people now in our partner team that are leading this right now. And as far as I know, we have some dev resources helping here, but those dev resources in general are dev resources that are helping with integrations, new systems that are coming in here and there. So that is already part of what their role is. And 
this partner integration is just another integration we're looking at. We have we, we just also purchased another billing and quoting system that they're doing. So they have their hands full on those types of projects. And when they don't, they then allocate excess resources to other to other projects. As far as I'm aware, the way we structure this. Okay, no, that's good to know. It's always a concern when you take in your core product developers off releasing new features and so on to rather do in- internal work. And uh, as an active video user, I'm seeing new features launched all the time. So how big is that, is that team, the actual kind of uh, product dev team? Yeah, I think the last team, I think we're now, the total company is about 200, 220 or 230 employees. I think we have a, a dev team. I actually don't know the exact number, but I'm going to give you an estimate. I think it's around 40, 50 people that we work with. And they're structured around various silos within the product and, and, and specific functionalities. But I don't know enough about it myself to give you more knowledgeable insight. Um, no, for sure, for sure. Well, well, let's kind of head on then to speak about those startups that that you mentioned. So they're not running. I'm not saying that, uh, yeah. that they were complete failures, but you know they're not running right now. And there's always learnings in the starting of a new business, the shutting down of, of a business. And you said that in particular, there were two digital businesses. Can you tell us a little bit about the businesses? Yeah, absolutely. So the first one was called Post Post, um, uh, which was a third mile logistics startup. And the problem that we were looking or trying to solve there was um, the last mile of a delivery, right? And uh, there's a really big issue there that we saw that anywhere between 20 and 30% of package delivery, e-com and also in business would bounce because either the person wasn't there or the person needed to sign wasn't there, which was a huge cost also for for the, um, the company and as well as for the delivery or, or organization. So we created uh, a system where instead of ordering it straight to someone's uh, house or to someone's business, uh, they would deliver it to us. And then we would have an after hours delivery service with a two hour time window to schedule a time to deliver when we actually knew someone was actually at home. So that was the first one. The second one was real estate uh, in the real estate business was called Property Auctions Live. And that was interesting. That was basically a platform to stream auctions of houses being sold. So in Australia, I, I don't know if that's also a thing in South Africa. I think that it might be. But in Australia, like 70 or 80 percent of all residential properties are sold on auction. So 40, 50 people, you have an auctioneer, you know, you know, and saying, it's really, it's amazing to see. And we created a motion where we would have people film that and then stream it to people that couldn't attend, right? And yeah. also to foreign investors with a capability also to put a bid in through that platform as well. Wow, that's really cool. And so you mentioned that kind of these businesses were early on in your career. So it sounds like you had some kind of initiation into video a very long time ago. <laughs> to that point, for sure. I didn't know yet that it would lead to this in the same way that I didn't know that being a yo-yo artist, just to bring it back to yo-yo, would actually help me get a job at HubSpot. I forgot to, to mention that, but I in, when I interviewed, I yo-yoed in the interview at HubSpot and then I realized, wow, I started yo-yoing as a kid and now because of that, <laughs> I got a job. So similar with Property Auctions Live. Yeah, that's that definitely that the initiation was already there, but I wasn't really aware. So, you know, both were early stage for me. So I, I had finished university back in, when was this? Now we're in 2021. So this was 2016. And I didn't want to immediately dive into 
corporates or into a, a world of other companies, I thought, hey, let's find an idea, let's find a problem and let's try something out uh, ourselves. And we started PostPost uh, also in Australia. Uh, we had a little bit of money to try it out. We did a minimum viable product, gave it a go. You know, we were definitely in the category, we don't know what we don't know. A lot of what the stuff what we did was, we don't know what we don't know. And then we realized as we went and as we, as we progressed, which was an amazing learning experience. But I think that in hindsight, right, in both scenarios, the teams that we formed were too inexperienced and too much overlapping knowledge and not enough complementary knowledge that both of them, because of that, didn't really uh, take off or, or really get properly off the ground. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, one of the talks I heard at, at Inbound a year or two ago was actually Brian and Damesh speaking about, you know, one of the things that they wish they had changed when they started HubSpot was to have a more diverse team because they were, you know, white males studied at MIT, all have this kind of similar background and view of the world. And if they had people of color, uh, women in the leadership team, things would have developed at HubSpot in a very different way. And uh, yeah. you're saying here, you and your co-founders had a similar skill set. Is that kind of where you say overlapping? Yeah, it's a similar skill set. And I would also say from like, you know, our, our demographics, our psychographics, right? They were all relatively similar, right? We had similar backgrounds in our studies from business administration, finance, similar times also of our life, I guess. So we were quite all inexperienced. And yeah, to your point, uh, same gender and same background where, where we came from. So yeah, definitely, I think making that more diverse would have made it very interesting to get different perspectives on how to approach things. But I think it was mostly the skill set that was too overlapping. For example, our guy that did the development for us was actually more of a business guy that did development a bit on the side. So was it his core skill set? No, but we ran with it, right? Instead of actually finding that hardcore developer to really build a rock solid product for us, to MVP for us. So that was already a friction point there. And I wish we would have had more people with different skills in, in, in a team. And I think things would have been different for sure in both scenarios there. So if I read between the lines, then the, the thing that you would do differently if you were to do this again is primarily have almost one of your founders or co-founders need to be technical to actually get involved and just write code. So I would love to hear your perspective on this, right? So I think yes. In hindsight, both of them, we really didn't have that good tech person. And with one, the, the property auctions live, we actually got somebody external to do work for us, which also didn't really work. And I think that if you're developing a, a tech product, one of the people in your team should be that dev lead and should also be as passionate and working towards the exact same goal as the other person of the founding team, which should be the business head, in my opinion. And then potentially you could look at an operational person as well as a third team. I think that that's a good trifecta. Um, But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that, obviously building a business, if if you look at it in the same way. Um, But that was definitely a learning that I I would consider if I would start something new again. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think any tech business, you need to have somebody on the team with equity so that they are motivated to actually get their hands dirty and do the work. Uh, you know, when you're a startup, you don't have the luxury of having a full development team. You need quite a multi-skilled technical person that can you know, do a bit of stuff on servers and do some development. And they're going to be very busy in the beginning. The business can't exist without them. And they're going to have to sacrifice weekends and evenings. And if you outsourcing this to somebody that doesn't have that same passion, you know, somebody that is an outsourced developer, their product 
is themselves. It's their time. And so all that they're trying to do is get more billable hours out of you. And you don't necessarily have that have that money. And if there is another client that comes along that has some urgent work and is prepared to pay double for whatever the case may be for you to do it, they're going to go with that other client of theirs. So um, I 100% agree you need a, a technical person in the, in the founding team. Yeah. And I guess that's the toughest thing, right? If you're a non-technical person with a really good idea to either find that person that is... And then also have the person believe as much in the vision as, as you do. And I think a lot of startups, I don't think they, they necessarily have that. They might have that dev person in the, in the founding team, but not with that same exact vision and drive as maybe the, one of the other non-tech people had. And that was the situation that happened in both of my uh, failed endeavors. Yeah, and the, the other thing that I've seen is where you only have a technical team mm-hmm. and they focus entirely on the product they really do believe just by developing this product, the customers will come. They don't think about the business side, the marketing side. And I suppose with these, both of your two businesses, I'm interested to hear around that customer acquisition because both of them, I suppose, require um, on the one side, you need enough people that know that they can actually get their delivery delivered to you instead of their address. And then the other one, the investors, the buyers need to know that, hey, I can't be in this particular location, but there is an alternative. Now, you could have the technology, you can have the pricing, you can have the business model, all that yeah. type of thing. But how are you going to get the people there? Yeah, so that's a really good point. With the first one, we managed to build some kind of minimum viable product, but we stopped with it before we actually went into uh, customer acquisition mode. So we acquired some beta users, right? And then after doing that beta analysis and looking not just at the product, but some structural problems we identified, we determined not to continue with it. The The second one with the, the property auctions live, that's where I started to think, okay, how can I acquire these customers? That's when I also learned and found out about HubSpot. So that's where we started researching, okay, how can we acquire customers at a cheap rate? How can we find, depending on keywords, et cetera, and almost all keywords that we would look into Google regarding these topics, HubSpot would be, you know, top five. So that's also where we started using HubSpot as a CRM. Um, and then again, we started really with acquiring some users. But then in that scenario, we had an external developer that just didn't want to continue to develop the product. And it just kind of exploded in our face. Uh, and we moved on and I moved on and applied for HubSpot and moved away from Australia and ended up at HubSpot in Ireland. So, you know, that's how things actually went. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I think when you look at um, some of the stories of those serial entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, and um, so often I hear them saying that, you know, the minute they get their idea, they're still looking for funding. The product is months, maybe years away from launch, but they start blogging because they need to Mm. build keyword authority for the domain. They need to address all the different uh, business challenges and goals that somebody might be searching for. And then they can, you know, their call to action is get added to the beta or the wait list or something like that. It's certainly, you know, I've seen so many startups and digital products where the founders only start the marketing once the product's launched. And when you look at search engine optimization, so that's a long-term strategy and and they haven't built that into into their business plan. 
100% agree. That was also one of the learnings that if I were to start something new again, and at some point I will, um, either as a side business or, and I've done things in throughout also work at HubSpot and well, at Vidyard, not, not yet, but uh, little side things. First thing is to immediately have that online strategy, start that even before the product is developed. That's how you can also immediately test the market, see if there is even a, an interest in it. And if there is even an initial conversion on it to determine if you should throw in money, effort, resources in developing that product, yes or no. So it's also a great way to test quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm like, I've been following the success of Clubhouse. Have you been following Clubhouse at all? No, no, I haven't. I saw here and there on LinkedIn, but I haven't. Talk, talk, tell me a little bit about it. I, I saw a post here and there, but I'm not sure. No. Yeah, so, so it's kind of a, a combination of a, a podcast and a radio show. So you can go into a room where there is often a celebrity busy talking and you're able to talk to them. And, you know, that started as an MVP, uh, very, very small, but they made it invite only. And it's through that process of invite only and also targeting the kind of, I suppose, uh, celebrity users that it's still invite only, but they've got, I think, just under a million users at the moment. And, you know, they've got a one-page website, but it's through that kind of fear of missing out that they've, that they've created this uh, kind of huge demand. Very cool. And, and, and so what is exactly their business model? Is it the, that they pay those celebrities to come on and, and they don't charge anything to the viewers? Or do, do you know? I wish I knew. There's okay. no information on the website. <laughs> so, so you can't even find out. But um, I'm sure it's going to have something to do with advertising in the end. I, and I don't know why the celebrities are doing it. Out of, if it's out of promotion and, and COVID kind of times and they're not making the money they used to make right. from making movies and, and, and so on or what the case may be. But, um, but yeah, they have certainly created demand just by restricting demand. It's a smart play. Curious, curious to see a little bit. I'll look him up a little bit. Maybe I'll see if I can get invited to one of these. I don't know what you got to do. Maybe I'll send him a video, see what happens, you know? <laughs> we're, not, we're not famous enough. It's only celebrities that they, that they get in or, or well, no, so, it can so, be anybody, right, that joins. Absolutely, yeah. Anybody who can join. So, yeah, and, and there's all different types of, of rooms that you can enter, business rooms, fun rooms, and, and so on. So, yeah, I'm also watching it very closely to see how that might actually change, you know, the, the world that we're in now where conferencing doesn't exist networking is difficult uh, just over video so is this an alternative um only time will tell but uh, speaking of time one last question from my side and and relates to time i suppose is if, if, if you were to give your younger self a piece of advice what would that piece of advice be uh the goal is failure i i i think that is a very good piece of advice and i really like what you did in terms of those startups you know, one of the things I suppose I regret a little bit is going straight into the corporate world straight after mm-hmm. studying. Um, and you get used to and you get comfortable with that salary. And, uh, and, you know, when you've got nothing and you can't lose anything, you know, why not go and try start something? And if you fail, you're going to learn so much. And even if you then decide to go into the corporate world, you're going to come with so much more experience. What 100%. I, I found the moment I, I think, and I wish I learned that earlier, the moment where you said, like, I'm going to try to not you don't want to fail, but I'm going to say, like, I'm going to try to do this and fail. Right. But I'm still going to give it a go because I'm interested or whatever. Do it. Then the whole stress and fear of it becoming successful goes away completely. 
because mm-hmm. now the goal is let's get to that journey to, to, to try and fail. And then also, by the way, in sales, right? If you're reaching out all the time is try to get 200 hard no's in your face. That's the goal. Try to get 200 no's in your face. Hard no's. That's the goal. Achieve that. And then, so the moment reps start thinking, okay, I'm going to get 200 no's, automatically yeses flow in as well, right? And things, be, and things start working. And I wish I, I, I would have told that myself earlier. Mm. Uh, I would have been more, I would have tried stuff earlier uh, in, in, in my life and in my career like that. I think that's an awesome piece of advice. A nice way to end us off today. Thanks so much, Anuv, uh, for joining me on Digital Surfing and uh, taking the time to talk to me. I found it really interesting. Loved hearing about the yo-yo. Loved hearing about the startups. And that last piece of advice, I think, is invaluable to anybody listening today. So thanks so much. And for all of you listening, catch us on the next episode of Digital Surfing soon. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. 